or that all blades of grass ought to be of the same length. Settle it in your mind that the main cause of all the suffering you see around you is sin. Sin is the grand cause of the enormous luxury of the rich and the painful degradation of the poor, of the heartless selfishness of the highest classes and the helpless poverty of the lowest. Sin must be first cast out of the world. The hearts of all men must be renewed and sanctified. The devil must be bound. The Prince of Peace must come down and take his great power and reign. All this must be before there ever can be universal happiness or the gulf be filled up which now divides the rich and the poor. Beware of expecting a millennium to be brought about by any method of government, by any system of education, by any political party. Labor might and main to do good to all men. Pity your poorer brethren and help every reasonable endeavor to raise them from their low estate. Slack not your hand from any endeavors to increase knowledge, to promote morality, to improve the temporal condition of the poor. But never, never forget that you live in a fallen world, that sin is all around you and that the devil is abroad. And be very sure that the rich man and Lazarus are emblems of two classes which will always be in the world until the Lord comes. Let us observe in the next place that a man's temporal condition is no test of the state of his soul. The rich man in the parable appears to have been the world's pattern of a prosperous man. If the life that now is were all, he seems to have had everything that heart could wish. We know that He was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. We need not doubt that he had everything else which money could procure. The wisest of men had good cause for saying, Money answereth all things. The rich hath many friends. Ecclesiastes 10.19 Proverbs 14.20 But Who that reads the story through can fail to see that in the highest and best sense the rich man was pitiably poor. Take away the good things of this life and he had nothing left, nothing after death, nothing beyond the grave, nothing in the world to come. With all his riches he had no treasure laid up in heaven. With all his purple and fine linen, he had no garment of righteousness. With all his boon companions, he had no friend and advocate at God's right hand. With all his sumptuous fare, he had never tasted the bread of life. With all his splendid palace, he had no home in the eternal world. Without God, without Christ, without faith, without grace, without pardon, without holiness. He lives to himself for a few short years and then goes down hopelessly into the pit.
how hollow and unreal was all his prosperity. Judge what I say, the rich man was very poor. Lazarus appears to have been one who had literally nothing in the world. It is hard to conceive a case of greater misery and destitution than his. He had neither house nor money, nor food nor help, nor in all probability even clothes. His picture is one that can never be forgotten. He lay at the rich man's gate covered with sores. He desired to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Verily, the wise man might well say, The poor is hated even of his neighbor. The destruction of the poor is their poverty. Proverbs 14 verse 20 and 10 verse 15. But who that reads the parable to the end can fail to see that in the highest sense Lazarus was not poor but rich. He was a child of God. He was an heir of glory. He possessed durable riches and righteousness. His name was in the book of life. His place was prepared for him in heaven. He had the best of clothing, the righteousness of a Savior. He had the best of friends. God himself was his portion. He had the best of food. He had meat to eat the world knew not of. And best of all, he had these things forever. They supported him in life. They did not leave him in the hour of death. They went with him beyond the grave. They were his to eternity. Surely in this point of view we may well say not poor Lazarus, but rich Lazarus. We should do well to measure all men by God's standard to measure them not by the amount of their income, but by the condition of their souls. When the Lord God looks down from heaven and sees the children of men, he takes no account of many things which are highly esteemed by the world. He looks not at men's money or lands or titles. He looks only at the state of their souls and reckons them accordingly. Oh, that you would strive to do likewise. Oh, that you would value grace above titles or intellect or gold. Often, far too often, the only question asked about a man is, how much is he worth? It would be well for us all to remember that every man is pitiably poor until he is rich in faith and rich toward God. James 2 verse 5 Wonderful as it may seem to some, all the money in the world is worthless in God's balances compared to grace. Hard as the saying may sound, I believe that a converted beggar is far more important and honorable in the sight of God than an unconverted king. The one may glitter like the butterfly in the sun for a little season and be admired by an ignorant world. 
but his latter end is darkness and misery forever. The other may crawl through the world like a crushed worm and be despised by everyone who sees him, but his latter end is a glorious resurrection and a blessed eternity with Christ. Of him the Lord says, I know thy poverty, but thou art rich. Revelation 2, verse 9. King Ahab was ruler over the ten tribes of Israel. Obadiah was nothing more than a servant in his household. Yet, who can doubt which was most precious in God's sight, the servant or the king? Ridley and Latimer were deposed from all their dignities, cast into prison as malefactors, and at length burnt at the stake. Bonner and Gardner, their persecutors, were raised to the highest pitch of ecclesiastical greatness, enjoyed large incomes, and died unmolested in their beds. Yet who can doubt which of the two parties was on the Lord's side? Baxter, the famous divine, was persecuted with savage malignity and condemned to a long imprisonment by a most unjust judgment. Jeffreys, the Lord Chief Justice who sentenced him, was a man of infamous character without either morality or religion. Baxter was sent to jail and Jeffreys was loaded with honors. Yet, who can doubt which was the good man of the two, the Lord Chief Justice or the author of The Saints' Rest? We may be very sure that riches and worldly greatness are no certain marks of God's favor. They are often, on the contrary, a snare and hindrance to a man's soul. They make him love the world and forget God. What says Solomon? Labor not to be rich. Proverbs 23.4 What says St. Paul? They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. 1 Timothy 6 verse 9 We may be no less sure that poverty and trial are no certain proof of God's anger. They are often blessings in disguise. They are always sent in love and wisdom. They often serve to wean man from the world. They teach him to set his affections on things above. They often show the sinner his own heart. They often make the saint fruitful in good works. What says the book of Job? Happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. Job 5.17 What says St. Paul? Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Hebrews 12.6 One great secret of happiness in this life is to be of a patient, contented spirit. Strive daily to realize the truth that this life is not the place of reward. The time of retribution and recompense is yet to come. Judge nothing hastily before that time. Remember the words of the wise man. If thou seest 
the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter. For he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8. Yes, there is a day of judgment yet to come. That day shall put all in their right places. At last there shall be seen a mighty difference between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Malachi 3, verse 18. The children of Lazarus and the children of the rich man shall at length be seen in their true colors, and everyone shall receive according to his works. 3. Let us observe in the next place how all lasses alike come to the grave. The rich man in the parable died, and Lazarus died also. Different and divided as they were in their lives, they had both to drink of the same cup at the last. Both went to the house appointed for all living. Both went to that place where rich and poor meet together. Dust they were, and unto dust they returned. Genesis 3.19 This is the lot of all men. It will be our own unless the Lord shall first return in glory. After all our scheming and contriving and planning and studying, after all our inventions and discoveries and scientific attainments, there remains one enemy we cannot conquer and disarm, and that is death. The chapter in Genesis which records the long lives of Methuselah and the rest who lived before the flood winds up the simple story of each by two expressive words. He died. And now after 4,800 years, what more can be said of the greatest among ourselves? The histories of Marlborough and Washington and Napoleon and Wellington arrive at just the same humbling conclusion. The end of each, after all his greatness, is justice. He died. Death is a mighty leveler. He spares none, he waits for none, and stands on no ceremony. He will not tarry till you are ready. He will not be kept out by moats and doors and bars and bolts. The Englishman boasts that his home is his castle, but with all his boasting he cannot exclude death. An Austrian nobleman forbade death and smallpox to be named in his presence. But named or not named, it matters little. In God's appointed hour, death will come. One man rolls easily along the road in the easiest and handsomest carriage that money can procure. Another toils wearily along the path on foot, yet both are sure to meet at last in the same home. One man, like Absalom, has fifty servants to wait upon him and do his bidding. Another has none to lift a finger to do him a service, but both are traveling to a place where they must lie down alone. 
One man is the owner of hundreds of thousands. Another has scarce a shilling that he can call his own property. Yet neither one nor the other can carry one farthing with him into the unseen world. One man is the possessor of half a country. Another has not so much as a garden of herbs. And yet two paces of the vilest earth will be amply sufficient for either of them at the last. One man pampers his body with every possible delicacy and clothes it in the richest and softest apparel. Another has scarce enough to eat and seldom enough to put on. Yet both alike are hurrying on to a day when ashes to ashes and dust to dust shall be proclaimed over them and fifty years hence None shall be able to say, This was the rich man's bone, and this the bone of the poor. I know that these are ancient things. I do not deny it for a moment. I am writing stale old things that all men know. But I am also writing things that all men do not feel. Oh, no! If they did feel them, they would not speak and act as they do. You wonder sometimes at the tone and language of ministers of the gospel. You marvel that we press upon you immediate decision. You think us extreme and extravagant and ultra in our views because we urge upon you to close with Christ, to leave nothing uncertain, to make sure that you are born again and ready for heaven. You hear, but you do not approve. You go away and say to one another, the man means well, but he goes too far. But do you not see that the reality of death is continually forbidding us to use other language? We see him gradually thinning our congregations. We miss face after face in our assemblies. We know not whose turn may come next. We only know that as the tree falls, there it will lie, and that after death comes the judgment. We must be bold and decided and uncompromising in our language. We would rather run the risk of offending some than of losing any. We would aim at the standard set up by old Baxter. I'll preach as though I ne'er should preach again, and as a dying man to dying men. We would realize the character given by Charles II of one of his preachers. That man preaches as though death was behind his back. When I hear him, I cannot go to sleep. Oh, that men would learn to live as those who may one day die. Truly, it is poor work to set our affections on a dying world and its short-lived comforts, and for the sake of an inch of time to lose a glorious immortality. Here we are toiling and laboring and wearying ourselves about trifles and running to and fro like ants upon a heap. And yet, after a few years, we shall all be gone, and another generation will fill our place. Let us live for eternity. Let us seek a portion 
that can never be taken from us. And let us never forget John Bunyan's golden rule, he that would live well, let him make his dying day his company keeper. 4. Let us observe in the next place how precious a believer's soul is in the sight of God. The rich man in the parable dies and is buried. Perhaps he had a splendid funeral, a funeral proportioned to his expenditure while he was yet alive. But we hear nothing further of the moment when soul and body were divided. The next thing we hear of is that he is in hell. The poor man in the parable dies also. What manner of burial he had we know not. A pauper's funeral among ourselves is a melancholy business. The funeral of Lazarus was probably no better. But this we do know, that the moment Lazarus dies, he is carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, carried to a place of rest where all the faithful are waiting for the resurrection of the just. There is something to my mind very striking, very touching and very comforting in this expression of the parable. I ask your special attention to it. It throws great light on the relation of all sinners of mankind who believe in Christ to their God and Father. It shows a little of the care bestowed on the least and lowest of Christ's disciples by the King of Kings. No man has such friends and attendants as the believer, however little he may think it. Angels rejoice over him in the day that he is born again of the Spirit. Angels minister to him all through life. Angels encamp around him in the wilderness of this world. Angels take charge of his soul in death and bear it safely home. Yes, vile as he may be in his own eyes and lowly in his own sight, the very poorest and humblest believer in Jesus is cared for by his Father in heaven with a care that passeth knowledge. The Lord has become his shepherd and he can want nothing. Psalm 23.1 Only let a man come unfeignedly to Christ and be joined to him, and he shall have all the benefits of a covenant ordered in all things and sure. Is he laden with many sins, though they be as scarlet? They shall be white as snow. Is his heart hard and prone to evil? A new heart shall be given to him, and a new spirit put in him. Is he weak and cowardly? He that enabled Peter to confess Christ before his enemies shall make him bold. Is he ignorant? He that bore with Thomas's slowness shall bear with him and guide him into all truth. Is he alone in his position? He that stood by Paul when all men forsook him shall also stand by his side. This is circumstances of special trial. He that enabled men to be saints in Nero's household shall also enable him to persevere. 
the very hairs of his head are all numbered. Nothing can harm him without God's permission. He that hurteth him hurteth the apple of God's eye and injures a brother and member of Christ himself. His trials are all wisely ordered. Satan can only vex him as he did Job when God permits him. No temptation can happen to him above what he is able to bear. All things are working together for his good. His steps are all ordered from grace to glory. He is kept on earth till he is ripe for heaven and not one moment longer. The harvest of the Lord must have its appointed proportion of sun and wind, of cold and heat, of rain and storm. And then, when the believer's work is done, the angels of God shall come for him as they did for Lazarus and carry him safe home. Alas, the men of the world little think whom they are despising when they mock Christ's people. They are mocking those whom angels are not ashamed to attend upon. They are mocking the brethren and sisters of Christ himself. Little do they consider that these are they for whose sakes the days of tribulation are shortened. These are they by whose intercession kings reign peacefully. Little do they reck that the prayers of men like Lazarus have more weight in the affairs of nations than hosts of armed men. Believers in Christ, who may possibly read these pages, you little know the full extent of your privileges and possessions. Like children at school, you know not half that your father is doing for your welfare. Learn to live by faith more than you have done. Acquaint yourselves with the fullness of the treasure laid up for you in Christ even now. This world, no doubt, must always be a place of trial while we are in the body. But still, there are comforts provided for the brethren of Lazarus which many never enjoy. 5. Observe in the last place what a dangerous and soul-ruining sin is the sin of selfishness. You have the rich man in the parable in a hopeless state. If there was no other picture of a lost soul in hell in all the Bible, you have it here. You meet him in the beginning, clothed in purple and fine linen. You part with him at the end, tormented in the everlasting fire. And yet, there is nothing to show that this man was a murderer, or a thief, or an adulterer, or a liar. There is no reason to say that he was an atheist, or an infidel, or a blasphemer. For anything we know, he attended to all the ordinances of the Jewish religion. But we do know that he was lost forever. There is something to my mind very solemn in this thought. Here is a man whose outward life in all probability was correct. At all events, we know nothing against him. He dresses richly, but then he had money to spend on his apparel. He gives splendid feasts and entertainments, but then he was wealthy and could well afford it. 
We read nothing recorded against him that might not be recorded of hundreds and thousands in the present day who are counted respectable and good sort of people. And yet the end of this man is that he goes to hell. Surely this deserves serious attention. A. I believe it is meant to teach us to beware of living only for ourselves. It is not enough that we are able to say, I live correctly, I pay everyone his due, I distort all the relations of life with propriety, I attend to all the outward requirements of Christianity. There remains behind another question to which the Bible requires an answer. To whom do you live? To yourself or to Christ? What is the great end, aim, object, and ruling motive in your life? Let men call the question extreme if they please. For myself, I can find nothing short of this in St. Paul's words. He died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Second Corinthians 5.15 And I draw the conclusion that if, like the rich man, we live only to ourselves, we shall ruin our souls. B. I believe further that this passage is meant to teach us the damnable nature of sins of omission. It does not seem that it was so much the things the rich man did, but the things he left undone which made him miss heaven. Lazarus was at his gate, and he let him alone. But is not this exactly in keeping with the history of the judgment? in the 25th of St. Matthew. Nothing is said there of the sins of commission of which the lost are guilty. How runs the charge? I was unhungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and ye visited me not. Matthew twenty five forty two and 43. The charge against them is simply that they did not do certain things. On this their sentence turns. And I draw the conclusion again that except we take heed, sins of omission may ruin our souls. Truly, it was a solemn saying of good old Archbishop Usher on his deathbed. Lord, forgive me all my sins, but especially my sins of omission. See, I believe further that the passage is meant to teach us that riches bring special danger with them. Yes, riches, which the vast majority of men are always seeking after. Riches for which they spend their lives and of which they make an idol. Riches entail on their possessors immense spiritual peril. The possession of them has a very hardening effect on the soul. They chill, they freeze, they petrify the inward man. 
they close the eye to the things of faith, they insensibly produce a tendency to forget God. And does not this stand in perfect harmony with all the language of Scripture on the same subject? What says our Lord? How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Mark 10, 23 and 25. What says St. Paul? The love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. 1 Timothy 6.10 What can be more striking than the fact that the Bible has frequently spoken of money as a most fruitful cause of sin and evil? For money, Achan brought defeat on the armies of Israel and death on himself. For money, Balaam sinned against light and tried to curse God's people. For money, Delilah betrayed Samson to the Philistines. For money, Gehazi lied to Naaman and Elisha and became a leper. For money, Ananias and Sapphira became the first hypocrites in the early church and lost their lives. For money, Judas Iscariot sold Christ and was ruined eternally. Surely, These facts speak loudly. Money, in truth, is one of the most unsatisfying of possessions. It takes away some cares, no doubt, but it brings with it quite as many cares as it takes away. There is trouble in the getting of it. There is anxiety in the keeping of it. There are temptations in the use of it. There is guilt in the abuse of it. There is sorrow in the losing of it. There is perplexity in the disposing of it. Two-thirds of all the strifes, quarrels, and lawsuits in the world arise from one simple cause, money. Money, most certainly, is one of the most ensnaring and heart-changing of possessions. It seems desirable at a distance. It often proves a poison when in our hand. No man can possibly tell the effect of money on his soul if it suddenly falls to his lot to possess it. Many and one did run well as a poor man who forgets God when he is rich. I draw the conclusion that those who have money, like the rich man in the parable, ought to take double pains about their souls. They live in a most unhealthy atmosphere. They have double need to be on their guard. Deep, I believe, not least, that the passage is meant to stir up special carefulness about selfishness in these last days. You have a special warning in Second Timothy 3, verse 1 and verse 2. In the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous. I believe we have come to the last days, and that we ought to beware of the sins here mentioned, if we love our souls.
Perhaps we are poor judges of our own times. We are apt to exaggerate and magnify their evils just because we see and feel them. But after every allowance, I doubt whether there ever was more need of warnings against selfishness than in this present day. I am sure there never was a time when all classes in England had so many comforts and so many temporal good things. And yet, I believe there is an utter disproportion between men's expenditure on themselves and their outlay on works of charity and works of mercy. I see this in the miserable one-guinea subscriptions to which many rich men confine their charity. I see it in the languishing condition of many of our best religious societies and the painfully slow growth of their annual incomes. I see it in the small number of names which appear in the list of contributions to any good work. There are, I believe, thousands of rich people in this country who literally give away nothing at all. I see it in the notorious fact that few, even of those who give, give anything proportioned to their means. I see all this and mourn over it. I regard it as the selfishness and covetousness predicted as likely to arise in the last days. I know that this is a painful and delicate subject, but it must not on that account be avoided by the minister of Christ. It is a subject for the times, and it needs pressing home. I desire to speak to myself and to all who make any profession of religion. Of course, I cannot expect worldly and utterly ungodly persons to view this subject in Bible light. To them, the Bible is no rule of faith and practice. To quote texts to them would be of little use. But I do ask all professing Christians to consider well what Scripture says against covetousness and selfishness and on behalf of liberality in giving money. Is it for nothing that the Lord Jesus spoke the parable of the rich fool and blamed him because he was not rich towards God? Luke twelve twenty one. Is it for nothing that in the parable of the sore he mentions the deceitfulness of riches? as one reason why the seed of the word bears no fruit. Matthew 13:22. Is it for nothing that he says, Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness? Luke 16, verse 9. Is it for nothing that he says, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. But when thou makest the feast, call the poor, the maimed, the blamed, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Luke 14, verse 14. Is it for nothing that he says, Sell that ye have, and give alms. 
Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. Luke 12.33 Is it for nothing that he says, It is more blessed to give than to receive? Acts 20.35 Is it for nothing that he warns us against the example of the priests and Levites who saw the wounded traveler but passed by on the other side? Is it for nothing that he praises the good Samaritan who denied himself to show kindness to a stranger? Luke 10.34 Is it for nothing that St. Paul classes covetousness with sins of the grossest description and denounces it as idolatry? Colossians 3.5 And is there not a striking and painful difference between this language and the habits and feeling of society about money? I appeal to anyone who knows the world. Let him judge what I say. I only ask my reader to consider calmly the passages of Scripture to which I have referred. I cannot think they were meant to teach nothing at all, that the habits of the East and our own are different, I freely allow, that some of the expressions I have quoted are figurative, I freely admit, but still, after all, a principle lies at the bottom of all these expressions. Let us take heed that this principle is not neglected. I wish that many a professing Christian in this day who perhaps dislikes what I am saying would endeavor to write a commentary on these expressions and try to explain to himself what they mean. To know that almsgiving cannot atone for sin is well. To know that our good works cannot justify us is excellent. To know that we may give all our goods to feed the poor and build hospitals and cathedrals without any real charity is most important. But let us beware, lest we go into the other extreme, and because our money cannot save us, give away no money at all. Has any one money who reads these pages? Then take heed and beware of covetousness. Luke 12:15. Remember, you carry weight in the race towards heaven. All men are naturally in danger of being lost forever, but you are doubly so because of your possessions. Nothing is said to put out fire so soon as earth thrown upon it. Nothing, I am sure, has such a tendency to quench the fire of religion as the possession of money. It was a solemn message which Buchanan on his deathbed said to his old pupil, James I. He was going to a place where few kings and great men would come. It is possible, no doubt, for you to be saved as well as others. With God, nothing is impossible. Abraham, Job, and David were all rich and yet saved. But, oh, take heed to yourself. Money is a good servant, but a bad master. Let that saying of our Lord's sink down into your heart 
how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. Mark 10.23 Well said an old divine, the surface above gold mines is generally very barren. Unquote. Well might old Latimer begin one of his sermons before Edward VI by quoting three times over our Lord's words, Take heed and beware of covetousness, and then saying, What if I should say nothing else these three or four hours? There are few prayers in our litany more wise and more necessary than that petition. In all time of our wealth, good Lord deliver us. Has anyone little or no money who reads these pages? Then do not envy those who are richer than yourself. Pray for them. Pity them. Be charitable to their faults. Remember that high places are giddy places, and be not too hasty in your condemnation of their conduct. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom 
when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.